That said, uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As the saying goes, every party has a pooper. That's why we invited you. Party pooper, right? Every, every party has a pooper. Every celebration has one person who just has this inexplicable ability to suck all of the joy and levity out of any situation. I listen to talk, uh, sports talk radio in the car on my way to work and on, and on the way home. I know very little about sports. So everything I know about sports is what Jeff Simbietta tells me on AM 610, the sports animal. And so, that, so I listen to a lot of sports talk. And over this last week, uh, people call in to the shows in the morning and the afternoon. And all they seem to do, I don't know if this is just an Albuquerque thing or New Mexico thing. Or what, they just gripe, just gripe and gripe and gripe about the Lobos. Well, football, it's just the New Mexico Bowl. It's not the Las Vegas Bowl. Like, it's a bowl game, people. We won games this year. Rejoice in that. Have some, right? Celebrate in that a little bit. Complain about the basketball team. Complain about what people just always seem to com- have something to complain about. Something to just, just take all of the joy out of any potential situation. We look in the Old Testament. We see the people of Israel shortly after coming out of slavery in Egypt, complaining, grumbling that there's not enough water. Oh, now the shackles are gone and you can see my tan line. You know, it's just complaining about the most ridiculous things, right? The Israelites just have this inexplicable ability to suck the joy out of every good thing God does for them. And yet God is still good and faithful to give them reasons to be joyful, even in the midst of them being a nation of party poopers, right? And so here in Isaiah chapter 9, we have what I think is one of the greatest promises of God's gift of joy to his people and to the world, which will come to fruition at Christmas. The promise of joy at Christmas is completely fulfilled in Christ because God's promised king, Jesus, who will end all war and who will lift the burden of our sin, that king has been born at Christmas. And there is reason for rejoicing. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, the prophet says this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Heavenly Father, we come to your word humbled by the fact that you have spoken to us 
in language that we can understand, in words that we know and can hear and, and can communicate with one another. God, we thank you for condescending to us that we might know you, the one eternal, almighty, everlasting God and your plan of redemption for us. God, I in myself am reminded daily how inadequate and unable I am to proclaim your word clearly. So Lord, help me this morning. May you speak words through me, that your church might be edified, that those who are far from God this morning, don't know Christ this morning, might, might meet him today for the first time. God, through your power, your Holy Spirit working in and through me and in and among each and every one of us here this morning, you be glorified in this time. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we look at this text today, Isaiah We've got to recognize, we need to understand first, that this message that Isaiah delivered was first heard by an audience of Israelites in the northern kingdom of Israel some 700 years before Jesus was ever even born. For them, this prophecy had meaning and significance. It meant something to Israel before Jesus was born, before they ever knew that there would be a Jesus, before they ever knew what he would look like or what his name would be or specifically where he might be born. And so this morning, we do well to work through this passage and and recognize that this passage that Isaiah 9 has significance for Israel 700 years before Jesus. But at the same time, we've also got to recognize that the authors of the New Testament, the gospel writers and Paul and Peter, and that those in the early church in its earliest days understood this text, Isaiah 9, to speak specifically about Jesus, specifically about Jesus. Christ and his fulfillment of this prophecy, and that it is in Christ that the fullness of the promise of joy to the people of Israel in Isaiah 9 is fully realized. And so that said, as we look at the text, the first thing that we see in verses 1 and 2 is that the promise of joy, here in these verses, the promise takes us from gloom to glory and from darkness to light. Verses 1 and 2, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. So it was in the 8th century before Christ, 700 years before Jesus, the people of Israel were split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Ephraim, and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom never had a good king in all of its history. The southern kingdom had some, but even those who were sort of good-ish kings were still deeply flawed individuals. Not a one of them was half the king that David was some 250 years before. And even at that, David was not that great of a person. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but he also raised wicked children and numbered his soldiers as, as at the end of his reign as a thing to point to his glory. He committed adultery with a married woman and had her husband killed in war. In the time of Isaiah's ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel, never had a good king, had, had begun to enter into a conflict against a neighboring sort of nation called Assyria. Assyria had begun to amass power and territory throughout the known world at the time as they marched west toward the Mediterranean Sea and toward the neighboring regions of Syria and Palestine. 
In an effort to fight back the coming Assyrian invasion, the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Ephraim, and its neighboring nation, Syria, not to be confused with Assyria, Ephraim and Syria would enter into a military pact to help one another fight off the invading forces of Assyria. This pact was known as, uh, th- this, this time of conflict was known as the Syro Ephraimite conflict. Ultimately, it would be a losing effort. And in 722 BC, Israel would fall to Assyria. They would be taken captive. They would be conquered. They would be defeated. In Isaiah 8, a chapter before our text this morning, God gives warning about this coming invasion. He warns the people of Israel of what is about to happen. An invasion that would be a part of God's judgment on his people, Israel. Because they've adopted pagan idolatry and they've, they've started syncretizing their religion with other pagan religions of neighboring nations. God would judge them because they had neglected the poor and the orphan and the spiritually depressed among them. And so in Isaiah 8.22, we read Isaiah say, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. God speaking through Isaiah about Israel, his people. They will be thrust into darkness as judgment, punishment for their sin and for their idolatry, for their spiritual adultery as a nation. It is to this deep and dark place of being conquered by an opposing nation of being depressed and oppressed by the enemy that Isaiah 9 speaks a promise of deliverance. The promise of Isaiah 9 promises that though they will be conquered and enslaved and and, and oppressed for their sin against God, the people of Israel will one day go from the gloom of judgment to the glory of deliverance. They'll go from gloom to glory, from the gloom of judgment to the glory of deliverance. The first part of verse 1 of chapter 9 provides hope for those who are in darkness, right? There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. She who was in anguish, the people of Israel suffering under enemy conquest, will have a day where the gloom of judgment is gone and glory will replace that gloom. And then the second part of verse 1 then contrasts a former time with a latter time. A former time of judgment, which is what they're about to endure at the hands of the Assyrians, with a latter time of blessing and freedom, which will come in the day of the Messiah, in the day of a promised king. These two nations, or or territories, Zebulun and Naphtali, are the tribal regions to the west and to the north of the Sea of Galilee. They're a summary way of referring to the northern kingdom of Israel that is facing conquest. We know that there are 12 tribes of Israel. Each of them got an allotment in the land of Israel. Zebulun and Naphtali were two different tribes, and those were their, their areas were there in the north and in the northern kingdom. The region of Galilee, then, is where Jesus performs the vast majority of his ministry prior to going to Jerusalem, where he'll be crucified and then will raise from the dead. Galilee is a region which, in Jesus' day, would encompass the areas formerly known as Zebulun and Naphtali. And so now that I'm putting you all to sleep with all this biblical history, just flip to the back of your Bibles, to the maps, and find Zebulun and Naphtali in one map, and then find Galilee in another map, and that will keep you interested for a couple minutes. (laughs) Isaiah calls Galilee, this region that encompasses Zebulun and Naphtali, he calls it Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. It's called this by Isaiah for the way that the northern regions of Israel had begun to co-opt and to syncretize surrounding pagan worship practices. 
It would be like if our church uh, started doing some uh, like Baha'i faith kind of things up here on stage, along with preaching. And we'll also, I don't know, sing a song to a tree or, you know, whatever the case might be, right? That's the kind of stuff that was happening in Israel. They'd started to take on the, the worship practices of the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations around them. It is from this place, Galilee of the Gentiles, that God will show Isaiah a Savior is going to come from. From among the worst part of the idolatrous and disobedient northern kingdom. One scholar said this way, that, that this verse, uh, uh, the second half of Isaiah 9, verse 1, he says, in summary, this verse surprisingly predicts that the least likely area of Israel, the far northern section that was the most military oppressed and the most influenced by pagans, will in some way be honored by God when he sends a new light in the future. And so here we have a promise to a people about to be conquered that from among them, God is going to bring a Savior. And yet for 700 more years and through two more empirical, imperial invasions and four more conquests, the people will wait for the fulfillment of this promise. The promise that God would remove the gloom of his judgment and replace it with the glory of his deliverance. 700 years they wait. These verses are then cited by Matthew, the gospel writer, in Matthew chapter 4. Verses 15 and 16. As Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, following his temptation and the arrest of John the Baptist, we read in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah. Chapter 9, verse 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what we see here in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, is that Matthew understands Jesus' act of settling in Galilee, in this region of Galilee, as fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. He says as much. And when Jesus does this, what is the message of his deliverance? What is the message that he takes to Galilee of the Gentiles? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is to say, church, that when the king comes, he calls people to turn from their sins so that they may enjoy the coming kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Israel's conquest by Assyria... 700 years before Jesus, was God's judgment for their sin. And his deliverance is through repentance, as Jesus says. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Enjoy and enter into the kingdom. And here Matthew leads us, the the church, those living after Jesus, to a fuller understanding of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, that the promise will ultimately not only bring people from the, the gloom of judgment to the glory of deliverance, but from the darkness of depression into the light of hope. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. The interplay of darkness and light is is something that has happened throughout literary history, uh, almost as long as people have been writing words. Certainly, this interplay between darkness darkness and light is all over Scripture. 
Rather routinely, darkness is used as this image for evil and for evil people and for times of depression and contexts of overwhelming sinfulness and wickedness. Contrast that then with the image of light, which very often depicts the exact, uh, exact opposite of darkness, right? Righteousness, holiness, times of blessing, the victorious defeat of sin. Certainly for the people of Israel, awaiting the promise of Isaiah chapter 9 then, they are gleaning from this promise in Isaiah 9 a day of hope and a day of renewed relationship with God. Several New Testament authors help us to understand what the age of light looks like as Jesus comes into the world. But I think John, the gospel writer and, and the writer of uh, the, the John's letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and also Revelation, I think John helps us best to understand this concept of light as part of the fulfillment of the promise of joy that God is bringing. In the prologue to his gospel, John writes in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, In him, that is in the word, which is we know is Christ, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 21, right after our favorite verse, right? John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John goes on to say this, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus brings the hope of life. He brings the hope of forgiveness of sins. He brings light into darkness. But his coming is incredibly uncomfortable. Have you ever been to a sketchy gas station restroom? And you, you get the key from the attendant and you open it up and you flick on the light. And all of a sudden, all these things just like scatter into the corners, into the shadows, right? Cockroaches just, they just run from the light. Light is uncomfortable to us because we, like cockroaches, love the darkness of our sin. We love it. You're asking yourself, did he, did he just call me a cockroach? <laughs> yes, I did. And, and me too. Me too. All of us in our sinfulness are like cockroaches who love the dark and hate the light. And when the light comes on, when light shines on the darkness of our sin, we run. Because we would rather be in darkness than to be in light. Each of us is sinful from birth. It's our, it's our nature and we do what our nature leads us to do, which is to sin and to keep sinning. And if you don't believe that children are sinful from birth, you come to my house this afternoon and you watch three of them in action. But what has our sin gained for all of us? What has it gained for us? Right? What do we get? Nothing. Death. Right? Broken relationships. Addiction. Envy. Anger. Consuming greed. The oppression of the poor. Emotional brokenness. Depression. But Christ has come to shine light into darkness, to send sin scattering. For us then, though, to be united to Christ, we've got to come into the light. We've got to stop loving the darkness and see the light for the good that it is, to walk into the light. We have to lay aside all of our selfish pride, all of our idolatry, and, and all of our sin, 
lay it there in the light, turn away from it, and follow Jesus. This is what it means to repent. It's the very thing that Jesus was telling people to do when he began his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Church this morning, whether you're a believer this morning or whether you're not yet a Christian, know this. You need to, this morning, let the true light, let Jesus Christ transform your sinful darkness. That's what he comes to do. That's what he promises to do. But you've got to give up and give over and step into the light of his holiness and his perfection. Repent from your sin and receive God's grace to you by faith in Christ in order to do that. My wife and I lived for a brief period of time in uh, Hawaii on the Big Island where it's incredibly humid. Uh, And we also lived for a little while in California where we would, uh, when it was cold at night, we would get condensation on the inside of our windows because it's seminary housing and you get what you pay for. And so so we would get condensation there. And then the same sort of thing in Hawaii where it's just humid all the time. And what was a constant problem that we were fighting all the time? Mold and mildew. The stuff just grows every, And where does it grow? Always in the cracks of the shower tiles that you can't quite scrub all the way up. Right? Or just in the cracks of things where the light doesn't shine. That's where mold and mildew grow. Maybe it grows in your refrigerator at home. And you're constantly fighting that. That's how mold and mildew work. It's, they thrive where there is no light. Where there is no fresh air. Where it's dark and damp and musty. And so does our sin. So does our sinfulness. It thrives in the darkness. It grows in the darkness. But what we need, more than just a splash of of bleach or or good scrubbing, what we need is to bring that all out into the light, that the light, that the direct sunlight of Christ right on our sin might kill that mold, kill that mildew, that, that lingering just nastiness of sin in us. The good news of, of forgiveness of sin and of eternal life through faith in Jesus has the power to transform not only your life, has the power not only to remove the moldy, mildewy gunk of sin in your life, but it also has the power to do that in the lives of your coworkers. It has the power to do that in the lives of your classmates. It has the power to do that in the lives of your family members. And church, we need to understand that and know that and own that because the gospel does have power. Christ does have power to bring us from gloom to glory, from darkness to light, from depression to, to hope. And when we believe that, when we experience that, when we are daily repenting, daily opening up our sinfulness to the light of Christ, that he might kill sin in us each and every single day, we experience the power of Christ, we experience victory over sin by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, and then we can share that same sort of victory, that same sort of hope, that same sort of joy with others. The promise of hope at at Christmas brings us from gloom to glory, from darkness to to light, but the promise also brings us unspeakable joy. Verse 3. Uh, and I think this is, this is like the center of, of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah says, you have multiplied the nation. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of God here, right? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 3 gives us what is ultimately the result of the promise of Isaiah chapter 9 fulfilled. The result of all of this coming to pass is joy, unspeakable joy. The Israelites, hearing this for the first time, 700 years before Jesus is born, are left longing for this divine gift of joy, this day of rejoicing that will come from the Lord. Indeed, it is a divine gift. 
Just as Israel's defeat by Assyria was a means of God's judgment, God using a pagan nation to judge his people for their idolatry, for their sinfulness, and the sending of a light was his work of redemption, so also is the joy experienced a gift of God. Isaiah says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. This is the kind of joy that we see at harvest time, right? When the toil of the summer comes to fruition and the storehouses are filled with fruit and grain and other things for the next year. This joy also looks like soldiers returning from battle, passing around the spoils of war, enjoying their hard-fought victory and the peace that is sure to follow. That's what this joy looks like in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. It is joy like that of a child waking up on Christmas morning to freshly fallen snow and gifts under the tree. It's joy like all of these things, but, but so, so, so much better. So much better. And it comes as a result of three things. The joy that God promises is a result of three things that God will do. First, Israel will have joy because the oppressor's burden is lifted. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Here Isaiah is pointing to a day when the oppressor of the Israelites, at that time Assyria, would be defeated. He's speaking about the defeat of their enemies. Staring down the barrel of of ultimate conquest, the Israelites know that they're going to be forced into labor for their captors. That's the way that conquest worked in those days. There would be a day, though, there would be a day when the Messiah would come and he would lift that burden of captivity. He would lift that burden of conquest. The lifting of the burden will be felt in Israel like that on the day of Midian. And those of you who are familiar with uh, the book of Judges, chapter 7 and 8 tells the story of Gideon. Gideon was a man chosen by God who with just a few hundred soldiers uh, earlier in, in that time of the judges in Israel would defeat the vastly superior invading army of Midian with just 300 soldiers, no swords, no shields, just torches and jars in the middle of the night. That kind of joy. And while the Israelites were looking forward to another military victory, because this promise is fulfilled in Christ, we know that the burden that Christ lifts is ultimately not that of invading armies. The burden that Christ lifts is not a burden of invading armies, ultimately, but the burden of falling short of perfect holiness because of our sin. That's the burden he lifts. That's the burden he bears for us. Israel was facing oppression and occupation, not because their enemies were so sinful, but because they were. They're facing invasion because of their sin. And in the same way, we are oppressed and we are under God's good and holy judgment because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him. Not a one of us is righteous. Not a one of us is holy. Not a one of us is good. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. Here he's quoting a couple of places in the Psalms. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Paul, maybe the foremost Christian missionary of all history, is here even including himself in the statement. Because of our rebellion against God, because we've earned his righteous punishment for our sins, right? Christ comes then to bear a burden that we cannot same as the Israelites in Isaiah's day, right? We're the same as them. The, the, the results of our conquest, our burden that we bear is not necessarily one of invading armies, but it is one uh, earned by our sin. 
And that is what Christ comes to lift. And so the promise of joy at Christmas comes because the burden of sin has been lifted in Jesus. But also in verse 5, the promise is so because wars have ceased. Every boot of the tramping warrior, Isaiah writes, in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The image of these verses is, is one of total and absolute peace. In the day of the Messiah, in the day of this promised coming king, the implements of war, boots and war clothes, will become fuel for the fire. They're no longer needed because war has ended. You only burn stuff that is trash or good for burning. And if boots and war clothes rolled in blood are the fuel for fire, right? that is a, an image of blessing. That's an image of, of peace. Jesus Christ, though, the, the Prince of Peace, even as we saw two weeks ago, right, as we looked at the promise of peace at Christmas, Jesus Christ will come to end the greatest of hostilities. He comes to put to death the war that we wage against God in our sinfulness and in our rebellion. Jesus comes to put us at peace with our Creator. And He comes to put us at peace with one another as we walk in obedience to Him. And so the peace that He brings is first spiritual. Right? It's vertical between us and God. But then it's also horizontal. It's relational between us and others. Because Christ, we are forgiven in Christ. We can extend grace and forgiveness to others and experience peace with one another. But there will come a day when this peace is not just spiritual, where this peace is actually physical, where there will be a literal end to all war. There is a coming a day when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will literally put an end to all conflict on the earth. The book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, shows us in vivid imagery a day when Christ will return to judge the world and that those who are found united to Jesus by faith in Him will enter into eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, a real, eternal, physical life with Christ in the presence of God. And there in Revelation 21, John has a vision of the place where all believers throughout all history will reside with God. This is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, a picture of the place where we will spend eternity. He beholds this beautiful new city, and as he's looking at it, he hears a voice from heaven say this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What is this but a picture of perfect peace in the face of the end of all war and all conflict on the earth? Because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, has come back and made everything right for all eternity. In, in Christ... The war that we have waged against God spiritually, our spiritual war against God, is over. We can find peace with God through faith in His Son. And that is incredibly good news. That is the most important thing that you can hear and take away from our time together this morning. That you can be at peace with God through faith in Jesus, who has put an end to that war for you if you trust in Him. But we also look forward to an endless stream of years when the threat of war and of hostility between nations and the shedding of innocent blood in the streets will be no more. Where tragedies like that we've seen over the last couple of weeks in the city of Aleppo, Syria, those days will be no more. Right? Children being killed in the streets, that, that day will come to an end. Innocent people being bombed by their own governments, that day will come to an end. There in eternity, we will have no need of boots for battle. We'll have no need of swords for fighting. 
will have no need of guns or bullets or warplanes or bombs because the Prince of Peace will bring eternal peace to all who have been made at peace with God through His blood. But finally, all of this joy for the end of oppression and war is, even as we've already hinted at, is because the King has come. For to us a child is born, Isaiah says, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The reason that they're going to be rejoicing at the end of oppression and the reason that there's peace for God's people is precisely because the only king who can accomplish these things has been born. In this way, the joy that is promised in verse 2, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Verse 3, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. That promise is attained when freedom and peace reign. And freedom and peace only reign when God's king is on his throne. All of the joy that God promises in Isaiah 9 hangs then upon the arrival of this king. But this king would be like no other king. And this we know from the name that he is given. His name, which actually appears in most of our Bibles as four names, demonstrates that this promised, peace-bringing, joy-giving king will in fact be no less than God himself in the flesh. First, the first part of his name, Wonderful Counselor. In the original language in Hebrew, it means something like wonder-working or miraculous advisor. This king will be a king who will rule and reign and perform miraculous signs as he is king. His kingdom will be one that is marked by wonder-working and the miraculous. What greater miracle is there than for a sinner to be brought to repentance and salvation by faith in Christ? There is none. Secondly, he will be called mighty God. In the Hebrew, this means something like God who is a war hero. Or God the Valiant Warrior. I, I, love, I love that title. It's just, it's so cool. God will be this sort of valiant warrior. But, but he, or the king who comes will be this valiant war, warrior. But he'll also be one whose name is God. The Lord as mighty God appears several times throughout the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at all of them, but here's a list, and if you're quick enough, you can write them down. Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. After the Israelites are brought out of Egypt, Moses sings a song of their deliverance and prays to God, saying that the Lord is a man of war who has waged war against their enemies in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 10, 17, we have reference to God being a mighty God. In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, we're close enough, we can read that. A remnant will return, Isaiah says, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. In Nehemiah 9, 32. In Jeremiah 32, 18. In Psalm 45, verse 3. All of these referring to God who is the mighty God or a mighty God or God who is a valiant warrior. That's who the king will be. Third, everlasting father, which means something like a king forever. This is not necessarily a reference to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Um, Rather, in those days, in Isaiah's day, kings were often referred to as fathers of their people. As they cared for and guided them and governed over them. But the Messiah would be a different kind of father. He's an everlasting father. He's a forever kind of king. He's a king who never stops reigning. Never stops loving and caring for and guiding his people. Finally, he'll be called Prince of Peace which in the Hebrew means Prince of Peace. That's, that's kind of a joke. 
It's what he's a, he's a prince of peace. He's the one who brings to an end all war and all strife. He is the one that ushers in an, an era of tranquility and calm, spiritually first between us and God, but then also relationally uh, between one another as we walk together in God's grace. But it's not only the name of this coming king that shows us his divine nature, but also the description of his kingdom. In verse 7, we find that the nature of the promised Messiah's rule will be eternal. It's everlasting. It's never-ending. We're told there will be no end to the increase of peace and to his rule. We find also that he'll be a king in the line of David and will rule God's people with justice and with righteousness. This is a description, church, that matches no king that Israel ever had in their day, even after David, even including David. Israel has never seen a king like this whose reign never ended, but they will. They will. Every single king who ever ruled in Israel was flawed and failed to ultimately rule well. Even Hezekiah and Josiah, kings who would come after Israel or after Isaiah gave this prophecy to Israel, even Hezekiah and Josiah, who were relatively good kings after and, and during the Assyrian invasion, they would have deep problems following God, deep problems obeying him completely. Instead, we have a picture of a coming king who will show all other kings for the shadows that they truly are. He is the true king. He's not a shadow. He is the light. He is the thing that casts a shadow. He is the best king. He's the king who rules forever and ever. And this king's name is Jesus. And at his birth, an angel announces to shepherds nearby in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and following. This is what the angel says to the shepherds. Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. That there will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. One who will save you from your sins. He is Christ. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. He's the promised coming king. He is the Lord, angels say. He's king of kings, Lord of lords, baby born in a manger. He's your Savior. This is the declaration at his birth. But when moving Forward, but moving forward to his death and to his resurrection even, we see this king's authority and his reign. And the king of kings and lord of lords, when Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, many of you probably have this memorized. This is what Paul says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? This is who Jesus is. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, because of Christ's obedience to the Father, his humility and his dying for us on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who our king is. That's who's born in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. That's who it is. Know this this morning, church. Not a bit of this promise to Israel in Isaiah chapter 9, not a word of it, is complete or fully realized apart from an eternal divine king who has all authority to accomplish all of these things. And while, in Israel, while Israel in Isaiah's day did not have the advantage of knowing Jesus' name, they didn't have the advantage of seeing his face, living 700 years before he was ever born, they had reason to trust, though, God's promise. They even had reason to experience and express the joy of, anticip of the anticipation of his coming. We, however, 
We, however, living 2,000 years after Christ, with perfect 2020 hindsight vision, we can see ever so clearly that this promised king is and must be, can only be, Jesus, born at Christmas. And we can share in the joy that God promised to his people and that God makes possible at Christmas when his only son was miraculously born of a virgin in a stable outside a little podunk town called Bethlehem. There is joy because this baby is in a manger. Not just because there's a baby, but because this baby is the king. Because this baby is the Messiah. The one that God promised to Israel in Isaiah chapter 9. All of those promises, specifically the promise of joy in the face of coming deliverance and light and forgiveness of sin. Right? We, we can enjoy those things because he is born. This morning, church, I, I implore you, I plead with you, rejoice in the promises of God fulfilled in your life because Christ is born at Christmas. Rejoice because of it. You think, well, that doesn't help me so much this week. False. Christian, this Christmas, church, we, you may not, you are not allowed, I forbid you, from being a party pooper this Christmas. God has been too good to you, too good to me, in Christ, to walk around in gloom this Christmas. Okay? This is no guarantee, though, that you will not have bad days. I, I can't promise you won't have bad days. I can't promise you you won't have days that are filled with sadness and grief and frustration and loss. People in our church have experienced those things this week and in the last just even several days. We deal with those hard things in life. But we can grieve without being gloomy. We can, we can simultaneously cry tears of sadness and tears of joy as we grieve, but grieve with hope. Right, that there is coming a day where, where peace will reign because of who Christ is and what he's done. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus, not a follower of Jesus, and you're struggling with despair and gloom, for, for you for whom life has been particularly hard lately, if you're here this morning, not a believer, you're living with ongoing illness, right, struggling with maybe cancer or just a chronic disease, we get you. Our church family has too. If you're struggling with what seems like crippling depression, like you can't get out of bed in the morning. It's a minor miracle that you're sitting here with us worshiping this morning. We hear you. We've been there too. I've been there too. And for you, non-Christian friend, you who are fighting with things in your own life, the results of, of the sin of others toward you, the results of sin even in your own life, things that you think that no one will ever understand, things that you think no one could ever forgive you for, know this morning that our church family wants to come alongside you. We want to pray with you. We want to cry with you. And we want to walk with you through hardship. But we want to do this ultimately so that we can point you to real joy and real forgiveness that lasts. Real joy and forgiveness that we each have found in Jesus. Because he fulfills the promise that God gives in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, of, of abounding, abundant, unspeakable joy. We know that. We've experienced that. Non-Christian friend, let us share that with you this morning. Joy is so much more than just happiness for today. Christian, we need to know that too. That joy is so much more than just happiness for today. Joy is content, contentment in the midst of struggle. And this is a contentment that we know, that we've experienced, that we see in God's word that only Jesus can give us. Right now, I want to invite every one of you to, to bow your heads and close your eyes very seriously, no looking around. 
you to ask yourself this morning, reflecting on your own life, do you need joy today? Are you without joy this morning? Are you facing depression, sin, hardship, whatever? And you need something to look forward forward to. Maybe that's you. If you're not a believer here this morning, I, I invite you to consider what we have said this morning about who Jesus is. The very Son of God, born in the flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life that he might die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. Be raised from the dead, (laughs) never to die again, so that any who would trust in Jesus, hang their life on the promise of salvation in his name, would be saved, would enjoy forgiveness of sin, eternal life with God, the kind of joy that God promises through Isaiah. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to to this morning, give, give your life to Christ for the first time. No real joy. Be saved today. It's, it's simple. It's as simple as turning from your sin and turning to Jesus. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that He's King, that He's the one that God promised, and you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will have your sins forgiven. You will be at peace with God. You will enjoy eternal life with Him. For the, with a the heart one believes and is justified. You're made right with God by belief in Christ. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We proclaim the name of Jesus, trusting him as Lord and Savior. And in that we are saved. We have the promise of Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Brother or sister, do you need joy this morning? Joy that only Christ can give you. If that's you this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed, you need to experience joy in Christ, trusting him as Savior for the first time. Would you just very quietly raise your hand? You need joy in Christ this morning. Don't hold back. Be bold. Be brave this morning. Today is the day to trust Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. In a moment, we're going to respond in joyous worship and song. Keep your heads bowed this morning. Singing together what Christ has done for us, rejoicing as the body of Christ. You who are searching for joy this morning, whether you raise your hand this morning or not, whether you know Christ as Savior and Lord uh, or not, especially if you don't this morning, would you be bold enough, would you be brave enough even today to come talk with me or with Pastor Bruce this morning about how to know Jesus? Come talk with us about what it is to be forgiven of your sin and to walk in real joy with Christ today. Don't walk out of here today questioning whether or not you know this King. We'll be waiting as we stand and sing as a church body together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll rejoice and respond in worship through singing. Our Father God, you, you are good.